0: Hi, I'm Ryan, the Post-Human Rules Guy. I'm Ben, the Luxottle Player.
1: I'm Helen, the Red Ones Go Faster
2: Storyteller. And I'm Jared, the There Is Only War Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. So today, we're going to talk to you about the newest Warhammer 40k RPG, Wrath and Glory. Before we get into this, I think that there is something very important that we need to say if this was a store it would be in big flashing bold letters outside our front door this setting is satire it is absolutely critical to recognize that this setting is satire without acknowledging that fact the whole thing falls apart this is important because much in the way that moby dick can either be a nautical adventure about a guy who just really hates this one whale a lot like forever or it can be a meditation on how obsession and vengeance will bring you ruin 40k games can absolutely just be silly fun about human tanks with chainsaw swords that live in pure terror all the time, fighting giant interstellar locusts and orcs with cockney accents whose latent psychic powers let them fly biplanes in space for somehow. Or you can focus on the dark political satire, exploring how zealotry, xenophobia, and fascism are the bars of a prison that man has created for itself as the architect of its own suffering. But anyone who engages with this game not in one of those two ways and instead finds themselves thinking, wow, Relatory, xenophobia, and fascism all really speak to me as cultural touchstones. Knock it off. No, knock it off. Put the game down, go outside, touch some grass, and find some human empathy, you monster. The other
1: thing that we need to say, more directly related to the podcast, the whole spectrum of familiarity with Warhammer lore is represented at this table. Jared has played miniatures game, read novels, read multiple editions of tabletop books. Ben and Ryan have also played the miniatures game, read and played multiple iterations of the tabletop computer games, read some combination of novels between them. I have read Wrath and Glory. I think Tyrannid minis are neat TM, and I have played a couple of sessions of Rogue Trader. When some someone on this 45-minute podcast inevitably misstates or does not address something from the decades of published Warhammer and Warhammer 40k lore, large portions of which have been altered over the years, and you catch it, please remember to like, subscribe, and recommend this podcast to all of your friends so that they too can hear us be wrong about something you know a lot about.
3: (laughs) Alright, so before we dive into this, because a lot of people aren't familiar with 40k, I'm going to do a very quick summary the setting
2: (laughs) yes I know more specifically a very quick summary of the traditional 40k setting because the wrath and glory setting is very different I'm gonna try
3: and summarize and condense a lot of stuff to just give you an, an entry level look Helen Your job is to make sure that we do not ramble off topic
2: while this summary is happening. But I want to talk about orcs and tomb lords.
1: The only one who's allowed to go off topic on this podcast is me.
0: Jared and I literally once spent 16 days talking about Warhammer while we were
2: backpacking.
1: For like 12 hours a day.
2: Yeah,
0: just keep that in mind. Continue, Ryan. The first thing I want to preface this
2: with,
3: Warhammer, like many different fandoms in the science fiction fantasy, genre with decades of lore behind them. Everyone has different opinions about what they think makes more sense or is a better story, or they just think some part of it is stupid and choose to ignore that. That happens a lot here and I'm sure all of us are going to have those things crop up. I'm like, I hate that. Why do they do that so bad?
0: Let's talk about space dwarves. They weren't space dwarves. They were
3: humans from high gravity planets, Ben. So, to get into it, the default faction in 40k is the Imperium of Man. 40k is called 40k because it is? Well, it started in the year 40,000 AD-ish. They've gone to 41,000. Things progress. 39,000 years in the future, humanity has had golden ages, and dark ages, and dark ages, and dark ages. There is only war! Yeah, things aren't doing great. That's my point. The most recent age the Imperium of Man is in is a very static, socially and technologically empire that hates anything that's not human, tries to kill anything that's not what they consider to be normal. So mutants or psychers or anything that they think might be a little off, that's bad.
2: It is definitely a society that looks at the good of the many over the good of the few. Yes, comma a lot. One of the big things that comes up is they take that to the extreme,
3: right? The Imperium of Man spans most of the galaxy. So if it comes down to like, well, this one planet was tainted by these aliens uh, that are going to attack everyone, blow it up. There's a couple billion people there, but compared to the hundreds of trillions that are in the Empire, eh, gotta break some eggs. And that's the very quick summary uh the other things that are important. Warhammer pulls a lot of inspiration from different science fiction sources. When you do FTL travel, you go through the warp, which is hell, so if you've ever seen Event Horizon, it's that. If you're a psyker, you channel the forces of the warp, so hell. The only people who can help navigate through the warp are specially bred mutants with third eyes that navigate things. There's a lot. There's just a lot going on. And And the iconic thing of space marines of having these transhuman genetically altered and cybernetically enhanced people who defend humanity from whatever. And just as often, the Imperium is fighting itself because it is made up of all these fractious warring factions who all want the same things and are competing with each other for the same resources. And it's just a mess.
2: One of the things that I think is really important to talk about in the 40k setting, even if we're keeping it super short, is its sheer scale. The whole point of the 40k setting is that we are, Ryan said it, talking about trillions of people in the empire. There are battles being waged on thousands of worlds at once. When you are playing in the 40k universe, the traditional 40k universe, whatever you do, even if you are playing a general commanding an entire army on a planet, you are playing a single drop of water in a giant ocean. And the setting treats you as such. Depending who is writing 40k and what media you are playing it through. It tends to bounce back and forth between super grim, dark, Inquisition tortures its own people because it's the only thing that could possibly save mankind and the downright silly. The silly is a really important part of 40K. It reminds us that like this setting was always supposed to be satire. For me,
3: one of the big elements of satire that people miss a lot in 40K is all of the edgy, you know, we have to make these sacrifices and do these terrible things to save everyone is absolutely taken too far. All the time. All the time. It really does, you know... Well, these inquisitors are running around and they're torturing people because they think they might know something about these evil demons. They don't. They just don't. They're normal people. There's no reason to do this. Also, all the bureaucracies are gigantic and have no idea where anything has been filed for the last 200 years. So mistakes happen all the time. Things get lost. Planets get lost. Some planet is making some specialized part and it's shipping it off to another planet. That other planet doesn't exist anymore, but no one has told them to stop making that part so they're still shipping it off.
0: A mess. And then the warp can do time dilation too, so sometimes your fleet of battleships arrives uh, 200 years after the battle.
1: And meanwhile, all of the accumulated psychic resonance of sheer human suffering, of being trapped in this galaxy spanning really hell-on space that the Imperium has created for itself is part of what is creating the chaos demons that they are fighting.
2: The reason it is hell is because it is it is the place where emotion creates reality and so all of the various species in in the universe their fear and hate and lust have created these demonic presences so if we could somehow make a society that wasn't awful there would be nothing to fear from the warp however because instead you have fascism run amok it is eating itself.
1: Yeah. And Imperium is eating itself and the rest of the galaxy while it's at it.
2: And then you compare that in juxtaposition to like the orcs in this universe are mushrooms. They are walking, talking spores. They breed by sporing. It's why you can never truly get rid of them. You think you've gotten them all and then more of them just grow. And
0: the vast majority of their guns work simply because they believe that they work.
1: It just takes one orc biplane to crash on an otherwise barren moon, and suddenly the moon is covered in orcs now.
2: Because the orcs are all latently psychic, and so their things work because they believe that they work.
0: Everything is wildly varied. Just the setting can be, I mean, anything, and that's part of what makes it so great. We're talking about how there's trillions upon trillions of human beings that they literally have an imprint for horror stories set in the system and an imprint for stories for children. Not really children, but young adults.
2: They're aimed at like 12 year olds. It's aimed yeah. at like children. children.
0: And then again, I've read, they don't really have these stories anymore, but they used to write stories that went all the way up to like X-rated versions of especially the, the chaos cults.
2: They used to go really in depth in some of their stuff, and like yeah.
0: torture, porn. It it got real dark uh, depending on yeah. as Jared said who is writing it and what they were writing it for and so that really makes it a very malleable setting for whatever sort of dark story that you want to tell because yeah it's going to have to be a little dark but uh, yeah it varies so much The
1: whole so spectrum
2: ironically. is available to you. As wide as the spectrum is the roles and lives that individual people in the setting get to live are the opposite they are incredibly rigid if you you are born into the Administerium, which is the largest of the bureaucracies for the Imperium Man. You will never be anything but an Administerium clerk. Your kids will be Administerium clerks. You will be bred with other Administerium clerks. Your great-great-grandkids will be Administerium clerks. This is your lot in life. You serve the Emperor. There is only one.
0: Unless something happens and they uh, have to go die in the killing fields fighting whatever is invading from the bottom of their hive.
2: There is no moving up in Imperial society. There is only moving down and this is really interesting because it, it creates something that is hard to play in a role-playing game because you can't go from being a grunt in the imperial Guard to being a space marine that doesn't happen space Marines are chosen when you're like 13 and how depends on which group of space Marines and then they genetically engineer you and blah 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 blah, blah. but because of this you are what you are and that's it which is to say because so much has been written about 40k what we know about each role is incredibly detailed and depending on which generation of Warhammer you are reading, a lot of it is contradictory if you read a lot of the fluff and if you read a lot of the books for the tabletop game, stuff that they said like this is the lore in 3rd edition, in 8th edition is not the lore anymore usually they
0: skirt around that by just saying oh it was for that planet because what you do and something that we're going to get into many times is Warhammer does a great job of getting so detailed that there's no hard and fast rules overall. It's like, yeah, this person does all of these things, but on this planet might be something completely different.
2: It is important to know, and it is okay to include in your games, that some stuff, like a lot of it, they, they do skirt, they do a pretty good job of it, but some of it is just plain, doesn't interact with each other.
3: This is true. One of the main characters of several novels is a, an officer in the Imperial Guard. His rank doesn't exist, in the Imperial Guard in like the hierarchy that they wrote up at some point. His rank, the title, that's not a thing.
0: What is this? Which one? Caiaphas Cain? Yeah. They still have commissars, don't they? No, they have commissars, but he's a... Colonel Komsar.
2: Which is not a thing. It was a thing for one edition and then they decided to never do it again and they started writing his books during that edition and just kept on and on. And so like for a while, orcs, their equipment ran because there were some orcs that were mega smart and they were extremely rare, but like one in a million orcs was, was a brain orc and so they would make high enough level equipment for everyone to use and they were just like orc factories churning out orc weapons. And then eventually they decided, eh, that's dumb. We'll just have them be psychic and it works because they want it to.
0: There's a book where the impers to a character and reveals that he's actually has multiple personalities to deal with handling the entire universe and he is totally alive. Guess what's never established again?
3: Yep. As I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of stuff and you're going to find stuff that you think is cool and you're going to find stuff that you think is stupid and you're really sort of left alone to pick what you want.
2: It's a buffet of grim dark. have at it.
3: And because it's so large, because the entire galaxy is in play, you can find whatever example you want to use somewhere, or just say, oh, they do it differently over here, and boom it. Great. Fantastic. I also realized we didn't explain the Emperor earlier, and that's on me. My bad. So the Emperor is a guy who is entombed in a machine called the Golden Throne that may be keeping him alive, or at least in some kind of
1: psychic version of life. He is at the very least in a vegetative state. His yeah. mummified body kept inside the machine so that his psychic consciousness could consume the devotion of the Empire of Man, essentially turn him into a god figure to defend it from the other things that the psychic devotion of the Empire of Man have created in the warp. Yeah, it is his psychic self
2: that is the beacon by which the navigators can move through the warp. His psychic power is so bright that it can be seen from anywhere in the galaxy, and he is how humanity travels. If he ever fully dies, there will no longer be an imperium. Humanity will be reduced to its scattered worlds and will be picked apart by its many, 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 many enemies. And to keep him alive, he is fed a thousand... I mean, he he doesn't physically (laughs) eat them, but the machine is fed a thousand psychic people every single day. Nom, nom, Gr- nom So grimdark. Alright,
3: I think this has been a. This has been your summary of the Warhammer 40k Imperium Wait, of Man.
2: You better talk about medieval Catholicism.
0: Oh yeah! If you can't tell by now, there is some faith going on here that the Emperor is alive and con- continues his capital W work. But we also have Inquisitors doing Inquisitor things. This is medieval Catholicism turned up to 11, maybe even 12. This is medieval Catholicism given an even larger blank check to do whatever the hell it wants, this time when they actually know they can show that hell does exist. Admittedly, they're partially feeding it, but that's the grim dark.
1: It's fascism all the way down.
2: It's the Inquisition with the ability to blow up planets.
3: Uh, This applies not just to the stuff that's happening. It's also the complete aesthetic of the Imperium. Like, saints' bones everywhere. Purity seals everywhere. That whole memento mori aesthetic. Large painting swaths on everything.
2: One of the reasons why we had to talk about all of that is to tell you just how different Wrath and Glory is. Wrath and Glory is not a giant galaxy spanning hundreds of thousands of planets.
3: The default set you can do that if you want to
2: right but it is set up and it's lore and what how it tells you classes work is set in a single system.
0: It is set in the Gilead system. This is a single system that has been cut off from the rest of the Imperium by either a warp storm or hand wavium, whichever you prefer. But really, many of the factions and races that we have come to, to love and loathe are there stuck together. Some, of course, have not yet been added. And it's a smaller version. It's a much smaller version.
3: Now that we've given you the- The summary of the setting, I'm going to give you a summary of uh, the setting.
2: Grimdark
3: apocalypse. Okay, Ryan, go ahead. So, I hadn't been reading Warhammer for several years before this came out, Uh, so when I started reading the core book, a lot of stuff had changed. Um, One of the big things is the Imperium has been split in two by a galaxy-wide anomaly, and the Gilead system is in that section that's split off. It is really a very big cross section of a lot of the Imperium. They try to pack a lot of different things in there that have been touched on in other places they try and throw in as many different races as they can and still make it make sense but to go over the planets there we have avacross it's a tightly locked forge world that is run by the adeptus mechanicus the adeptus mechanicus are tech priests Yes, they're transhuman technology-worshipping religious officials that want to replace all of their organics with cybernetics.
0: Except the biggest sin in their religion is innovation.
3: Yes. Also, they don't really understand how most of their technology works, so everything has taken on a, a very spiritual and religious uh,
2: Ryan, I'm going to have to stop you and disagree with you. They know exactly how all of their technology works. They pray to the machine god and say the prayers and put on the holy oils. And then the machine god smile on them and the machines. That's how their technology
0: Are you a southerner talking about an AR-15?
2: <laughs> it's fascism all the way down <laughs> um.
0: right so this is a forge
3: world it's owned by them and the sole purpose of this world is to produce whatever it is they want to produce most of the time it's tanks and guns and whatever stuff goes into the war effort but it could be anything so that's them they're there they're pretty important netheris is a violently tectonic night world I wasn't aware of night world before I started reading this edition so surprise for me knights are are people who have hereditary mechs they have giant robots from the last golden age of humanity that they their families have like carefully tended and maintained and that they go into battle them and they are run this world that is horrible earthquakes and volcanoes all the time
2: for those who are interested in larger 40k universe but are not familiar with later versions the knights are between tank size and titan size they're 20-foot-tall war machines piloted by a single person, as opposed to 80-foot-tall war machines piloted by a small community. Next
3: is Ostia. It's an agri-world. You may have noticed a theme that they really like just simplifying worlds down into one focus. Their job is to grow all the food for the system. They're having some problems with that right now. Output's not really meeting demand, so the workers are being pressed to produce more and more and more, and it's starting to lead to some tensions.
1: And the system cut off from the Imperium. So if there was going to be a time for an uprising, what is now?
2: So this is an important thing to say. If there were a class uprising, if there were a rebellion on any other agri-world in the Imperium, the Inquisition would show up and they would simply put, kill everybody and bring in new farmers. And that would be
1: the end of the Uprising.
2: There would be a bunch of skulls on pikes, and then there would be new farmers.
0: I
1: wouldn't even get to that point, because they would just, you know, release a toxin that just killed every living thing that wasn't food. Uh, And then they would have the ships show up next day to drop off new captive farming class workers.
3: Yes, but using technology like that is expensive, so they'll probably just release a bunch of soldier's with guns and tell them to shoot everyone individually. It
2: depends who's running it and yeah. how baroque they
3: are. Right. So, anyways, keep in mind that the entire system is cut off, and it was not designed to be cut off, so that's why a lot of the conflict is happening. Uh, those tech priests on Avacris, they're the only people who are making stuff in the system right now, so if you want something new that's not you know, a, a pretty simple thing you can make by hand, you have to talk to them and get them to give it to you. Like car engines. Or- right. Phones or hospital equipment. Anything. All of it. Guns. Lots of guns. Next is Enoch. It is a shrine world, which is exactly what you think it is. It is an entire world that is one big memorial. There are shrines. There are graveyards, there are reliquaries, it's all devoted to worshipping and giving praise to the emperor. They're starving. They're not getting any food shipments, so all the people who are there to take care of all of the shrines aren't eating. Oh, It's kind of a problem. And they're all starting to get very desperate. Gilead Primus is the capital of the system. It's a hive world, and hives are giant megacities. It is a single city that
2: hosts a
0: billion plus people
2: it's coruscant yeah hive worlds are coruscant from star wars it is planet spanning cities
0: Except that we see the poor people.
2: Except that we see the poor people.
3: Because it's grim dying. Sometimes there's space between the hives. It's really how I, I, each one is set up. But yeah, in this one, it's the hive city. It's the capital. It's where most of the stuff is happening in the systems where the vast majority of people in the system are. And it has all of the baggage that come with that. They are also starting to have some tensions between the upper class and the workers. And the gangsters who live underneath the hive. But that's pretty common. Next is the planet I can't
1: pronounce. Caribbean.
3: Caribbean. Charibdean Caribbean. 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 Caribbean is an ocean world it is almost entirely covered with water and the important thing about it is it has the natural resources to produce and refine a, a very important fuel for the Imperium called Prometheum which is used whenever you have something that needs to burn in the Imperium they use a Prometheum <laughs> <laughs> whether that's your car engine or a flamethrower. it's there um
2: Or what it's mostly used for, which is the holy lights burning in every temple.
1: It's the secret sauce.
3: Yes, it is. (laughs) It is. So, the tech priests run these refineries, and most of the people there were there to work on these refineries. And they're starting to have problems. The local fauna, which was already tended towards gigantic sea monsters, is starting to get worse. And that's that's all the imperial planets in the system. There are a few other moons and things happening, but we don't really need to talk about those to to really give you the, the meat of the
2: setting here. Because the setting is a single locked system, many of the normal rules don't apply. There's way more social mobility. You can start as one thing and become something else. There are space marines in this system. They do not have their normal ability to find new space marines and make new space marines by doing death conflicts and crazy difficult athletic feats across dozens of systems to find the perfect people. So they're having to replace their numbers by just, you know, oh, you're a pretty good soldier. Yeah, we'll see whether or not our genetic modification kills you. You're either going to be dead or a space marine. Good luck.
3: It's a pass or fail class.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is something that can be a serious positive from an RPG standpoint. In the more traditional 40K universe, you cannot start one thing and become another. You cannot start a tech priest and become a space marine. I mean, that's still not going to happen here, but you basically can't really start anything and become something else unless you start something and then become a guardsman. That's like really the only transformation you're allowed. You can always be drafted.
3: That's all it's option. <laughs>
2: right. Uh, but that's really the only transformation allowed in traditional 40k and here you can become something more than you are this setting actually allows for a touch of the hopeful and the aspirational not a lot like let's it's still grim dark but it's there a little bit i think that this is pretty positive and pretty necessary for an rpg but it's not faithful to the original fluff so when you sit down to play a game particularly with fans of the original fluff you're gonna have to have a conversation of are we playing wrath and glory or are we playing 40k with wrath and glory because they're pretty different.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a change from previous 40k role-playing games where they just kind of handed you the setting were like, have fun. Clearly, the writers realized that this was not a setting where you could really advance without them messing with it a little bit. And I agree with Jared. I think these are overall improvements for, for this particular usage.
1: These are the kind of modifications to the setting to really make it feasible for a tabletop Warhammer 40k has always had all the things you need in order to play a mini's war game. And that has been what it was. And it it went on and it, it spawned books, but books are not automatically without modification a tabletop setting. And it's made computer games, but computer games are not automatically without modification a tabletop setting. I think the things that they did here are really what make it accessible and make the setting useful fodder for tabletop storytelling without just essentially saying, play a minis game except there are no minis
3: as my friend said I think it's a cool setting but I wouldn't want to live there
2: I hard agree I think that these changes were necessary to make it a vibrant RPG but like as a longtime fan of 40k every time I see something that they've changed I'm like oh and it makes me a little sad so like particularly if you have people coming at it from a role-playing background and then people coming at it from a 40k background I know we talk about communication a lot Lot, but it's going to be even more important here than it usually is your session zero is really gonna need to be what are we taking from which and i think that they've done what you need to do to have a successful rpg so i would urge you to at least consider taking stuff from this but i know some friends who are 40k friends of mine who if i tried to be like well this is a setting where imperial guardsmen can become space marines they would just stand up and leave the room and never come back they'd be gone they'd be gone then so have that conversation before you
1: start Or if you are playing with people or thinking about playing with people who have no specific nostalgia for the game, then go ahead, give it a try.
0: Well, we'll have larger discussions about that particular point at a different moment. But one of the other things that really comes about because of this is that you can actually have a much larger systemic impact. As Jared stated at the beginning, you are but a single drop of blood in a vast sea of blood in a world of blood, in a universe of blood, blah, 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 grim dark blood.
2: Skulls for the skull throne! Yeah.
0: A huge overarching theme is that you can do a whole lot and change nothing. That obviously doesn't work in a TTRPG for really obvious reasons. This narrowing this down to a single system and a system that isn't even that big makes your impact way larger than it would be otherwise. Even helping some minor NPCs in a, in a single spaceport can really change the balance of power in that star system versus you can blow up 10 worlds in 40k and people will not know who you are. So, because the setting has gender-locked classes and every race is more or less an enemy. Boo! If you're sticking to fluff, or no cross-class, anything. If that bothers you, you should consider a different game.
2: There is no orcs working with the Imperium, that's not a thing. There's no chaos working with the Imperium. That's extra not a thing.
0: Just as the roles are rigid, the factions are really rigid, and so just be really prepared for that.
1: Pro tip, there are many wonderful games that do not have this particular variety of baggage associated with them, so rather than taking the trouble to homebrew this one, you can go explore those. Like, they've given you the opportunity in the Gilead system to do things things differently as you see fit, but also you will almost certainly find something you enjoy more than this if you have no particular loyalty to Warhammer and there are elements of the setting you just don't like. Easy example, Lancer. Lancer is the opposite side of the spiritual coin from this game. It still has a minis combat element, you can still pilot mechs, and you have a vast galaxy to explore. Go play Lancer, give Lancer a try, and and like that's not to brush anyone off that's they're very clear that you are free to change whatever you want to suit at your table page nine games workshop is not the boss of you neither are the angry forum guys but at the same time you know it's a decision to make do you go for the homebrew or do you maybe accept kind of your your setting boundaries as it were and maybe look at what else is out there
0: like many of you out there i spend my days doing somewhat clever things and when i want to read a ttrpg i am in many ways explicitly paying someone to think of clever things for me if this is not the setting for you there's there's nothing wrong I wouldn't spend a whole lot of time trying to homebrew this particular setting I'll put it that way Uh, there's nothing particularly wrong with it but as we'll discuss later on you know you'd be fine I
1: think the the argument in support of this that can be made is you have the bones of a system here I mean more than bones you have meat and sinew of a system here, or I guess a setting here. If you don't, if you want to go out into Lancer, they have it. There is a setting in Lancer that you can play in as well, but there is definitely going to be more that you're kind of putting together on the fly. You don't have to put anything together on the fly in Warhammer 40k. Even in Wrath and Glory's built-in setting, you don't have to put anything together on the fly. There are tens of thousands of pages on the internet that will fill in any, any blank that you have. The RPG police, like vampires, can only enter your home if you invite them in. So don't invite them in. Don't invite the police in. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do
2: it. Call your RPG lawyer, get some representation. So, anyways. (laughs) So page 157, the first time we are introduced to the rules, rule page one, line one is, if a rule's in the way of fun, change it or ignore it, front and center. That is one of the core tenets of this game, and I think it's really, really important.
0: This is a good gaming philosophy. And the other gaming philosophy rules that they list, be welcoming, discuss... What uncomfortable topics want to avoid ahead of time? Safety mechanics, like we've referenced before, you know, be respectful players, be good mentors. These are core foundational elements to having a good game, whether it's of wrath and glory or any other system, but it is a really good place to start from. Man, I'm
3: really the summary guy in this episode. I'm going to summarize the rules for you now. So, the base system is actually pretty straightforward. The game master assigns a target, which is the number of successes you need, and then you add a an appropriate attribute on the scale together roll that many d6s 4s and 5s are successes or as the game insists on calling them icons and a 6 is a critical success or an exalted icon I'm not going to call them that though there's a successes and crits
2: can I get on my soapbox for one second we're going to talk more about this later but if you listen to our last episode Helen stated how much she hated custom dice I really hate custom terminology that means nothing if every other game calls it a success and a critical success just call it that you don't need to be cool i would have accepted calling critical
3: successes icons i would have accepted that but anyways your critical successes they can be used in two ways you can either use them as two normal successes uh, or you can use them for something called shifts which we're going to talk about later you spend them to do a little extra stuff one of your dice almost every time you roll it is a rat die it replaces one of your normal ties. And so you have to make sure it's a different color, or different style, or something. If you roll a 1 or a 6 on that, something happens. Either detrimental or beneficial, but it's a, a sudden change. A twist happens that might hurt you or help you Uh, to add a little bit of mayhem to the system.
1: Difficulty numbers are guided by how complex the circumstances and the desired action are. They have a chart to assist GMs in making that call, and and GMs are also encouraged to, one, make the choice of picking the difficulty number as transparent to the players as possible, and two, skip very low difficulty tests that do not have interesting results, particularly for higher tier PCs. As we've said before, in other games, if it is not interesting, then just skip it. Space marines should not have to roll to kick down a door.
2: They're off space.
1: Really, they should have to roll to see if they can go through the door because they have extra shoulders. Like that's <laughs> <laughs> Wow. what a
2: great system that would be so funny to do for one session you have to roll every time you try to walk through a regular door because you're too damn big no, no.
3: <laughs> you make them roll every time they try to do something a normal person could do like oh i'm sorry you're nine feet tall and in power armor when you pick up the glass of tea it shatters in your hand
1: you know what i've been kind of sassy about this but i would play that setting i want to I play, play that, that, that I have hammer 40k game the um, one where we just raz space marines the whole time. And their okay.
3: auxiliary shoulders.
2: <laughs> it's where um, I keep
3: my extra organs.
2: Um, ah, but I need this tea to stimulate growth of my second heart. Okay, so
3: healthiest boy I've ever seen. So many <laughs> organs.
2: The system has two main resources. They are called, shockingly, Wrath and Glory. Dun, dun, dun. So clever. So these two resources you can use to affect outcomes beyond just the basic die roll. It's sort of like a hero points, fate points setting. One pool is limited to your character. Everyone will have their own. And that is Wrath. And the other is shared by the team. That is Glory. They do specific things when spent, but they always are beneficial. And they introduce a more strong strategic kind of wargaming element to the game i.e. when you choose to save them or spend them will be very important to see
1: your success in Wrath and Glory. Your character will start each session with two Wrath. That's just their pool. It's use it or lose it. They don't care between sessions. You restart each session with back at two Wrath. So do use your Wrath. You can gain Wrath for roleplay, for character growth, and for achieving mission objectives. Spending Wrath lets you re-roll failures, propose a narrative addition to the the scene or restore shock shock
3: just for your information is a stun mechanic it represents things like being fatigued or knocked around and confused or you know you haven't been sleeping or eating or drinking so you can spend your raft to kind of shrug off some
0: of that that's not actually a physical wound
3: it's
1: kind of general conditions and wear and tear other than ticks on your health bar
0: as to glory the team starts with zero glory you will automatically get glory when you your wrath die rolls a six called a Roth critical or wrath critical and Actual
2: no, genius. your version's better.
0: I wanted to say that once in this episode.
2: We gotta be a little British about it.
0: You can also choose to use an exalted icon or the roll of a six on a die to add glory to the pool through shifting.
3: All right, I mentioned earlier that we were going to get back to shifting, and now we are, and I'm going to summarize shifting for you. Shifting is when you use your exalted icons or your critical successes, as you prefer, uh, in a way besides just turning them into normal successes. If you've already met the difficulty for the roll and you have one left over, you can use it for a special benefit.
2: For example, you can gain new insight about a situation by asking the GM one question they have to truthfully answer. You could improve the
0: effect of the result. You can improve the speed of your action.
2: You could add a damage die if you are attacking. Or you could add a point of glory to the pool to be used later. So the way this works is you have to meet the difficulty of your roll without the benefit of your crit successes first. So let's say your difficulty is two and you roll two successes and one crit. You now have four successes because crits count for two each. And the difficulty was two so you spend your two regular and then you can shift the crit to something else. You cannot remove the crit before you do the difficulty. So like if you don't meet the difficulty and you get a crit you can't shift that one away. You just fail. That's sad for you. Uh, Similarly, if
1: you roll four normal successes and no critical successes, then it doesn't matter if your difficulty was two. You can't shift the combined two normal successes, which in Wrath and Glory speak is, if you roll four icons and no exalted icons and the difficulty number was two, that's sad for you.
2: Like any good 40k game, there are a lot uh, where the result is just, it's sad for you. And you know, that's as it should be.
1: We mentioned the Wrath die before and that it has extra mechanics. The reason we didn't expand on that right away is because we didn't want to confuse the wrath die with wrath points. Because, you see, the wrath die is completely unrelated to wrath points. It actually generates glory points. But aside from the name, it has no specific interaction with your wrath points. Why it's not called the glory dice, no one knows. Much like the grand bureaucracy of the Imperium of Man hasn't functioned for 20,000 years, we don't know. So a
2: six on your raft die is a raft critical. It will always generate one glory, regardless of if the action succeeds. It's the only way to get glory if your roll fails. If the action behind the roll was an attack and the roll succeeds, this is also a critical hit. And this six also counts as a critical success or exalted icon. But if you choose to shift it for additional benefit, you do not lose the glory point or the critical hit. They always happen. Wrath dice are special.
0: Now, one on your Wrath die is a Wrath complication. Something happens to complicate a success or compound a failure. Book recommends using this not just for stacking random bad crap, but for a player to explore what could happen to them that would make their life a little more complicated. It's a narrative prompt that the player is supposed to answer with the GM's approval, so make something that helps explore a fast of the character. The
1: book suggests thinking more in terms of no and if a complication is a failure and yes but if the complication is for a role that otherwise succeeds.
2: It's time to talk about highlights and duds. The things that we really love about the system and the things that we really really wish weren't there. There's one huge highlight that stands out for me. It's my favorite thing about Wrath and Glory and that is lenticular choices. Those are choices that can be seen through a lens. What I mean by that is many of the rules come with a simple version and the complicated version and you can either go lean easy and fast or use the more accurate to the lore and complicated version whichever you like i love having these choices there is a basic character generation that is easy to understand and fast to make a first time player can make a character using these rules in probably 10 minutes hallelujah that is so nice to have
3: now they also give you the option to get really in depth so the system is actually point by you spend your experience to buy your attributes and your skills and you buy special talents for your character, et cetera, etc, cetera. Et cetera. And that is incredibly detailed. However, they have done a very good job of going through and giving you templates that tell you this is the minimum skill and attribute you need to perform this function and this is what we recommend that you start with. When they give you the recommended stuff, if you take that, you still have some points left over to, to finish building your character, right? So if you told the GM, I to play a tech priest. Uh, they'd be great. All right. Well here's the template for you. Buy up these things that you have to have and you can use the example stuff below that. And if you take it, you're almost done with your character.
2: And then the other option is to fully build your own custom character, which is a lot of fun. And I think it actually works really well, but I would not recommend doing it your first time playing with the system or if you aren't familiar with the system. It is really easy to build characters that do nothing when you are doing everything yourself. If you start with a template, you are always gonna be useful. If you spend all your points, it's really easy to make a character that does nothing.
3: I do want to point out that it's not
2: better or worse to do one or the other.
3: They just group things together as a, as a benchmark.
2: They just made it so like, do you want to play fast or do you want to really make your character unique? One's not more powerful than the other. It's just like, have
1: at it. Having a basic character generation system where things are sort of pre-packaged for you really can help put up guardrails and makes it harder in this system to build a bad character. There are games out there where you can feel like you're doing everything right and when you actually sit down and the dice at the table Turns out that your half of your sheet is in conflict with the other half of your sheet and you built something that is not only underpowered for what you had intended, but doesn't work the way that you wanted to, doesn't work the way you thought it did, and is now actively hindering your fun. Having a system in any game where they give you options for if you want to go and put together a character sheet by yourself. Once you read everything, read all the options, do your own sort of homework on this because it will turn into homework. You can do that, or you can go down the line, pick a template, and go. That speaks to me.
0: Something to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page is there are multiple tiers of characters. Uh, What this means is you can play someone at the very bottom of the Imperium, or you can play an Inquisitor who can do literally anything they want to anyone and you can play anything in between too and they have different tiers and they have it set up pretty nicely and I'd say pretty effectively Um, so you can pick where your group wants to be at.
2: One of the things that's like really cool about this is it's not required but it makes it really easy if you want to tell an advancing story for you to play multiple characters over the course of your campaign and you know play whatever character's power level is appropriate. You have your guardsmen for investigating and finding out what's going on and and bringing the problem to your Inquisitor who investigates. And then when you find the problem, he sends in the Space Marines who smash it to bits. It lets you have all of those different steps. It does. It's
3: actually, they've done a few really cool things with it already. And you can also just advance a character the the entire way through. They have a system in there for that. If you are going to another template, you just have to spend the experience to buy the minimums for that template. And then you can just make the jump whenever you go up in tier. God, that is so not the base system. <laughs> no. But you can also, if there isn't another template you're interested in, you can also just advance in your template. If you wanted to play an Imperial Guardsman, starting out as someone who got drafted and end up as a high-ranking officer who's in charge of companies and stuff, you can do that. They have little event templates that you take to say, like, oh, I was really hurt, and everyone thinks I'm dead. Or I made an impression, but I've also made some enemies. Or I awakened my psychic power. That's a problematic one but whatever so they have all these options for you and in the first one they put out they actually included a lot more templates they really filled it in so if you wanted to play a tech priest but you weren't starting at the right tier they gave you a choice for each of the tiers and they filled it out so you have a career trajectory now
2: another highlight for me i really like that there are rules for chaos orcs and the eldar space elves for those who are not familiar with the system
3: uh, I think you mean the Eldari.
2: Oh God! Uh, yes, I do mean the Eldari. Space I mean, elves. They're space elves. They changed the name in recent editions because their lawyer said Eldar was not something that they could copyright, and so even ah. though it was Eldar for eons, it became Eldari.
0: I mean, don't forget that they call humans the Mon-Key. Yes.
2: Yeah. Uh, we're just gonna skip right past that. There's possibly. a lot of a lot to unpack here. But
1: we're not gonna. We're just gonna set the suitcase on fire and move forward. So
2: the thing I like is that those rules exist. I think it's really great that you are not forced to just play Imperials. That being said, the thing I don't like is, boy, howdy, does this game want you to play Imperials? And almost all of the rules are for people in the Imperium. I assume they will flush it out later, but the rules for everything else that they have.
0: Let's be real. You're only expected to play orcs, especially, and probably Eldar as a one-shot.
2: Yeah. The rules are there so that they can be villains but by including the rule to make them v- villains, if you really want to be contrarian, you can play them.
3: There are very limited options for other races right now. However, with the way they built the system, it would be very easy to just put out a supplement book. Here's Agreed. the Space Elf book. Here's all the information you need for it. Here's the Orc book. And I assume one day they'll do that. It would be super easy to pluck and play with that.
2: I totally agree. It's just saying like Highlight for me, they have put in a rule system where that is doable. Right. Low light for me, they haven't really done on it yet so
1: I apologize for once again comparing it to a world of darkness property but they are the majority of the things that I know I have a frequent complaint is a strong word but complaint about vampire the masquerade and it's the idea that there's all this world building and depth and story and you can approach it thinking oh so we're gonna play powerful vampires uncovering the secrets of Cain's curse and the mysteries of prison. they answer is, I mean, you can, but that's not really in the scope of the book. Well, well, what's in the book? Oh, you play a handful of scruffy blade extras locked in a political dispute over the best nightclub in Dubuque, Iowa. Also, you've only got like three vampire powers because otherwise you're just people, but the sunlight will kill you. That's how I feel generally when you're presented with rules that you're not really supposed to use or exciting setting opportunities that are really only there because you felt you had Adam, and not really to be incorporated into the game a lot of the really neat stuff that this
2: setting and this one system setting in particular give you the opportunity to do you can only do with max tier characters this is true you cannot explore the inner workings of the tech priest society if you are a guardsman i mean No. We could go back and forth.
1: The expansion of this particular complaint is this particular complaint is even more for base Warhammer 40k. The Wrath and Glory setting eliminates a lot of that because they serve up the whole setting for you to interact with. They, They free it up. They make it a little more available to you. But like Jared's saying, there are still things that are kind of locked behind the kind of characters that you choose to play. And that's just something you need to think about when you're going into the camp
0: and one other huge minus on the core rulebook at this point is that there are no vehicle or space rules despite how important both of those things are to the
2: setting. They just released a supplement with vehicle rules that includes the basis of like the it includes pretty in-depth vehicle rules and only the basic space rules and they've said they are making a space rules supplement so like those things are coming but it does seem like a huge minus that it's not in The base game, given how much a part of 40k that is.
3: I think Wrath and Glory came out pretty early in this edition of Warhammer when they had the first big canon changes with like the huge Orb Storm and stuff. And when it came out, I don't think there was a way for anyone who was cut off to go FTL at all in the setting, but that's they fixed that. Well, they found a workaround for that in the setting, but the book hasn't come out yet where they include that.
2: (laughs) I'm not even saying they need warp rules. I want rules for- Just ship combat. Ship combat and moving from one planet to another. Like they mention in the rule book that there are these other aliens with space fleets making it difficult to travel between worlds in this setting. And then don't give us rules to interact with it.
1: No, Jared, we've already covered this. Like you said, you say the appropriate prayers and you anoint the machine. You're right. I'm sorry, my mistake.
3: (laughs) You (laughs) have to remember to thank the machine spirit. So besides that supplement, Church of Steel, they've actually put out a handful of modules and supplements as well. I promised my fellow podcasters I would run one of them, but I have not done that yet. Because he's a liar. No, we've been busy. Most of them start with pretty low-tier characters, though one that I found particularly interesting, it's a whole series of modules, one for each tier of character, and it's all happening in a battle simultaneously. So, in the first tier, you're, like, prisoners who got drafted into the Imperial Guard, and they give you a helmet and a gun and say, "All right, go that way and shoot anything that's not wearing this helmet. And then you go up to the next tier, which are people investigating something that's happening at the same time in the battle. And it goes all the way up to a space marine kill squad who's like kicking down the door of the tower and fighting with the big bad guy while the first tier characters are dying horribly in the battle
2: so basically I know Ryan should be doing this since it's a summary and he's the summary guy this episode but to summarize my feelings on this whole thing do you love Mm -hmm. Warhammer 40k is it something you've been interacting with since you were a kid congratulations here is a tabletop rule set that doesn't use a d100 roll under that actually makes sense and allows for you to personalize your characters it's what we've all been asking for I don't know 20 years
1: meanwhile do you have no specific nostalgia or loyalty to Warhammer 40k or other Warhammer properties. Well, here's a tabletop rules set. Womp. Womp. Yeah. Oh, that's much sassier than it has to be. It's just that I'm thinking about Lancer.
2: Yes, This is not our Lancer review. You'll hear that at some point. But, man, Lancer is good. God, Lancer's so good. I want to play Lancer. Well,
0: <clears throat> I'm Ryan, the post-human rules guy. I'm Ben, the Luxottle player.
1: I'm Helen, the Red Ones Go Faster Storyteller.
2: And I'm Jared, the There Is Only War Game Master. Together, we are the Starting Equipment Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been our last official episode of Season 1 uh we're going to go away read a bunch more systems do some more let's plays come up with great new content from you And we're going to come back with our next full-length episode at the start of our second season in 12 weeks on monday june 6th but don't worry we're not entirely going away every week between now and then we will be posting mini interludes uh these are 10 to 15 minute episodes featuring one or two of us explaining something that we're passionate about in the role-playing world. So even though we won't have another full length episode for a while, don't worry. We're not going anywhere. We're still making great new content for you guys every week. See you soon. And may the dice be kind to you.